An astronomy club around 40 minutes away from my house, 45 minutes, is called the Racine Astronomical Society. It's a, it's a, it's an astronomical society, an astronomy club that basically is the astronomy club of Racine as the city and Racine as the county. There, it is one of my favorite places ever. It. It is arguably the number two spot. It is one of my favorite places ever. And it hosts, like every other astronomy club, public nights each year in, a, in an attempt to get new members. Uh, in October of 2017, or it, when I was in seventh grade, my parents encouraged me to go to one of the Racine Astronomical Society's public nights. I had never been to an observatory before, even then, even though my grandfather was the president of one of the largest amateur astronomy clubs in the Midwest. I still had never been to a legitimate observatory before, and I was not quite 13, I was 12 at the time. Uh, upon arriving, I was absolutely shocked, I'll say this, I was absolutely shocked. It was one of the most unusual moments of my entire life. Uh, there were 15 telescopes, some mobile setups, um, some of them were mobile setups like someone had maybe like, for example, a 6 inch refractor with a one meter-ish focal length or something, um, and we just got to look through them, we got to see planets, we got to see everything, and they also had a massive observatory with which they were uh, observing the moon. They were observing the moon through a very large visual telescope, um, and it was just incredible. It was, the observatory was on a hilltop, and it was overlooking this expanse of just completely unobstructed, not only skies, but unobstructed, um, unobstructed fields, fields of trees and of forests, and we were well above it. We were probably a hundred feet above it. It was one of the most incredible things, one of the most incredible views I've ever had. We're still in the city, so it's still very light polluted, but it was just absolutely beautiful. Um, the observatory overlooked a beautiful hillside, as I said, in a Bortle 6 sky. So for all that know the Bortle scale, that is still very quite light polluted. It's actually slightly less light polluted than where I live. I live in a Bortle 7, uh, but it's still extremely light polluted. Um, but for Milwaukee, though, a Bortle 6 sky is basically as dark as it gets because we are in one of the most light polluted areas in the entire country. Uh, actually, arguably, I would say in terms of corridors, like in terms of interstate corridors and regions of the United States, I'd say we are in the top four. I'd say we are with the Northeast, with New York, Boston, uh, from New York, from Boston all the way to Maryland to Baltimore. Uh, we are with them, and they would be number one, of course. I would say Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and all the way up to about, I'd say, 50 miles north of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and then I'd also say Los Angeles. The Los Angeles region, just the city and the San Diego surroundings. You have dark skies close to there, but again, not very accessible because they're still an hour and a half away. But even in Milwaukee, you have to go three and a half hours just to get those same dark skies. So... You could say that Milwaukee has, I, I would say Milwaukee-Chicago corridor is probably, I would say, the third worst in the country. Because it's not as bad as Florida, it's not as bad as the Northeast, 
but it is definitely pretty bad. So I'd say we have the third worst uh, light polluted region of the United States, which is just absolutely atrocious. Um, but still, in the sky, uh, we could see the beautiful summer triangle, um, and we got to see as it slowly moved from the zenith to the western heavens, uh, as the Pleiades, Aldebaran, and Taurus rose from the horizon, and as Perseus, Cassiopeia, and Andromeda neared the zenith, or directly above. I saw the moon, a half moon at its peak altitude, uh, through an observatory telescope. I saw, I'm pretty sure at least, for I'm not really sure I was eyeing that object or another globular cluster, because I was, again, 12, and I didn't really listen to the astronomers. I just kind of looked at the things because I was just absolutely shocked. I was stupefied witnessing the beautiful heavens for the first time. I'd, I'd looked through a telescope before, but I'd never been to an observatory with really massive, incredible telescopes. So it was definitely a first for me. But I, what I'm pretty sure I saw was Messier 13, or the Hercules Cluster. It's the largest star cluster in the Northern Hemisphere, yet it still does not compare to Omega, Cent Omega Centauri. Omega Centauri is way larger then, well, appears way larger than any other <laughs> globular in the entire night sky. That is the best star cluster in the entire sky, no question. Uh, I also got to see the Dumbbell Nebula, a planetary nebula in Volpecula, uh, Saturn, I think I saw Uranus as well, uh, but I cannot confirm, and also the Double Double, which is a star system containing two binary star systems. So you have two stars right next to each other that technically form a binary, that do form a binary, and then each of those stars is really a binary in and of themselves, which is just really interesting to me. Uh, but remembering that night, I often find myself considering it the best night of my entire life, for it evolved my appreciation of astronomy from purely a love of physics to an enamored passion for both the heavens and physics. And it reminded me, looking back at that day, it reminded me of a poem, a short poem by Walt Whitman that my cousin introduced me to, uh, that I find appealing to me every single day. Uh, it is called, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. Uh, I, I don't really often recite poems, so understand that I may not be very good at it. Uh, but the poem goes like this. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon, unaccountable, I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. A fellow astronomer once mentioned to me a book called The Last Stargazers, a story of the fading presence of astronomers under the night sky. Before that night under the stars, I was the learned astronomer. Now, recognize the recognizing the enduring beauty of both, I can embrace the stunning chorus of their combined insight. It's I love math. I love physics. I am addicted to physics. I'm addicted to charts. Charts. I'm addicted to being that learned astronomer, but I still fancy that dark night sky and looking with a telescope just to see it.
just to imagine myself at that part, in the middle of that globular cluster, right next to that nebula, in the midst of that galaxy, looking back toward Earth as if there was someone that existed there. Well, I existed on another planet, in another galaxy, in another galaxy cluster, in another universe. We must understand that there's more to astronomy than both sides, we must understand that there's more to astronomy than zodiac signs, than looking at the moon every once in a while. But we also must understand that there is more to astronomy than figuring out the composition of dark matter, than figuring out what the event, the, the properties of the event horizon of a black hole are. We must understand that astronomy is a chorus of unusual curiosities. Uh, it is the combination and the representation of our just fundamental inherent curiosity as human beings. It is, it is the chorus, the combination of both observation, of just observing, just seeing that beautiful night sky, and examining it. It's a two-sided, it's a two-sided dice, a, di a two-sided die, let's say it that way even though not really, because a die is six-sided generally. I don't think there really are two-sided. Let's say it's a coin. How about that? It is a coin. Um, but it just brings me to another thing, and it reminded me of a short story that I'm writing, and I basically, basically just said this. A wanderer points his telescope at the stars, wondering how the pinpoints of light many trillions of kilometers distant become so bright. Concurrently, a learned astronomer models an explanation on how those same pinpoints become so luminous. In this chapter, or this episode, the types of optical telescopes will be examined, for I need to learn the different types of telescopes by their actual properties, and not by my own assumptions of what each type looks like. So I basically just... To understand the different types of telescopes, I basically just kind of figured them out myself and there, there's more to it than just that like for a reflector I just look at the I, I just know that the eyepiece is toward that for a Newtonian reflector I know that the eyepiece is toward the top of the tube basically and for a for a uh, for example a Schmidt Cassegrain SCT telescope uh, the 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 uh, there's a lens, there's a lens with a circle in the middle of it, so that's how I do that. Refractor, uh, the eyepiece is at the very back. I don't, that's basically how I learned those three major telescopes. And the Dodsonian, the, the tube is open. That's basically what I do. It, it, it's open and portable. So that's basically how I kind of figured those out. But there's more to it than that, of course. Uh, but everyone hopefully knows what the telescope is. The telescope is an instrument that uses lenses and or curved mirrors to discern distant objects. Uh, telescope, quote-unquote, refers to a device that is used to observe distant objects through their emission, absorption, or reflection of electromagnetic radiation. This can be an optical telescope which observes distant objects through their radiation, absorption, and or reflection of distant visible light. Uh, it could be radio telescopes, which observe radio emissions, um, absorption and, and reflections, of course. They could be X-ray telescopes, which observe X-ray light, and gamma-ray telescopes, which observe gamma-ray light from distant objects. Uh, this, this episode focuses only on 
optical telescopes. Uh, and in the optical telescope category, there are three major optical types, all based upon the uses of lenses, mirrors, or both lenses and mirrors. These are reflecting, refracting, and catadioptric telescopes. So we'll start with we'll start with refracting, which use lenses, uh, and then we'll go to reflecting and then catadioptric. The refracting telescope, colloquially, colloquially referred to as the refractor, is a telescope that uses a lens, like lens refracts light, a lens refracts light, so that's where we get, hence the name refractor, to gather light and obtain an image. A refractor, like a reflector, uses a long tube to concentrate light to the eyepiece. Uh, the reflector's build is significantly different from that of the re refractor, though they are both long tubes. Uh, at the end of the tube opposite of the observer, or the end of the tube that points toward the sky, a lens refracts the light that enters the telescope. The lens reflects, refracts and deflects the light to a trajectory that focuses all the collected light in the telescope to the eyepiece and the person looking through that eyepiece. As light is refracted, as the light is refracted, it is focused to a point. Thus the brightness of the object is significantly magnified. The eyepiece focuses the image, and magnifies it to the size of the human pupil. The refractor's focal length is measured in the distance in millimeters between the lens and the eyepiece, or camera, in and on the telescope. For example, if the length between the lens and the eyepiece is 3.3 meters, then the focal length in millimeters is 3,300 millimeters. Uh, but 3,300 millimeters, that is still a very large focal length, especially for a refractor. Refractors very rarely get that long in terms of a focal length, very rarely. The magnification, or the amount a subject is enlarged, is the telescope's focal length divided by the eyepiece's focal length. Uh, for example, if a telescope with a focal length of 1,000 millimeters had a magnification of 100x, the eyepiece would have a focal length of 10 millimeters. Uh, the refractor telescope was the earliest optical telescope. Uh, the original inventor of the refractor was Hans Lippershey, but he never received a patent for his invention. And hearing of the telescope, uh, everyone knows this name. If you don't know this name, look him up. Galileo Galilei constructed his own refractor, uh, the Galilean refractor, and discovered that the Sidera Irensia, or the wandering stars in Latin, were not wandering stars, but rocky and gassy worlds. The Galilean refractor used a concave lens as an eyepiece. While the concave lens did not create an inverted image, it did not allow for a wide field of view, compared to the convex lens. Uh, for the light, when refracted through the concave lens, was spread out, and in meaning diverged, rather than concentrated. The Galilean refractor was later improved upon by Kepler, who created the Keplerian telescope, for it must be named after its inventor. Uh, the Keplerian refractor uses a convex lens, a lens that converges light to a point of uh, the concave lens, diverges light, which creates a wider field of view at the expense of an inverted image. The Keplerian design used with the achromatic lens, a lens that resolves chromatic aberration, which is the failure of a lens to focus colors to a single point, and allows shorter focal lengths, is the typical design of most refractor telescopes.
The apochromatic refractor is a much newer technology that is often used for astrophotography, the imaging of the night sky. I have an apochromatic refractor myself, and I will say that they are not cheap. I don't have one yet, but I'm very soon to have one. Um, the apochromatic lens resolves chromatic and a spherical aberration far better than does the achromatic lens. One of the telescopes I plan to buy for my astrophotography setup, the William Optics Red Cat 51, is an apochromatic refractor with a focal length of only 250 millimeters that sells for $832. And not so cheap, are they? Uh, it, it is a very, very good telescope, though, especially for beginner to intermediate astrophotography. Beginner, beginner, beginner to advanced. Beginner to advanced astrophotography, as in, like, they're beginning the advanced form of astrophotography, but overall probably beginner to intermediate for basic to advanced astrophotography, just in general. Um, but it is a very nice telescope. It's still not, it is no Takahashi, uh, incredible 100 millimeter focal, or 100 millimeter aperture refractor that's $5,000, but it is a very, very nice telescope. It is about as good as you can get for such a low focal length. It's very good. It's a good bet for your buck. I'll say that. Uh, long focus camera lenses, lenses that have focal lengths greater than the length of the diagonal of the camera sensor, are actually refractor telescopes. So I have a 50 millimeter camera lens that is a refractor. That's interestingly enough. Uh, refractors, especially. Uh, apochromatic refractors are popular in high-end astrophotography. Uh, for example, a rare but high-end telescope on the market that I use basically every single week is the StellarView SVQ100 f5.8 APO or apochromatic refractor. It's a it's an astrograph as I like to call it. Uh, the largest refractor in the world is the Yerkes Observatory's 40-inch aperture or diameter of the lens telescope. It's a 40-inch 40-inch mirror. Uh, the Yerkes Observatory is located near Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, so actually only an hour away from my house, basically. A reflecting telescope, often called a reflector or a Newtonian telescope, which is a type of re reflector, is a telescope that uses curved mirrors that reflect light to form an enhanced image. Uh, the reflecting telescope is the type of telescope used in basically every research telescope, such as, for example, the Hubble Space Telescope. In the most common type of reflector, light enters the tube of the telescope and travels to the opposite end of the tube, where it meets the primary mirror. The primary mirror reflects the light and concentrates it to the secondary mirror, a mirror near the sky-facing edge of the telescope that is slanted to reflect the light directly to the eyepiece. Piece. Uh, this is the specifically this is the Newtonian reflector. To be very specific, that is that is the design of the Newtonian. The aperture of a, of a reflector is the diameter of the primary mirror. The focal length of the typical two-mirror reflector is the, about the length of the tube. If the tube is four meter lo meters long, the focal length will be around 4,000 millimeters. The focal ratio in a reflector is measured the same as the refractors. It is focal length divided by aperture. So if you have a focal length of 2,000 2, millimeters and a diameter of 400 millimeters... <sighs> A diameter, yes, of 400 millimeters, you would have a focal ratio of f5, basically, is what I'm saying. That's pretty typical. An f5, it's a very nice telescope, so 2,000 millimeter focal length, an f5 focal ratio is pretty decent. 
Uh, the proposition that curved mirrors act similar to lenses existed as early as the 11th century, when Alhazen, an Arab polymath of the Islamic Golden Age, wrote a treatise on optics. After the invention of the refractor, astronomers such as Galileo and Giovanni Francesco Sagredo considered designs for a telescope that used curved mirrors, that uses curved mirrors, not lenses. With a refractor that produced significant spherical and chromatic aberration, the need for reflectors was justified, for mirrors produced limited spherical and no chromatic aberration, though they have their own problems. Collimation, uh, chromatic aberration, and uh, a loss of contrast, for example. The first working reflector was designed by James Gregory in 1663 and built by Robert Hooke in 1673. James Gregory's reflector, known as the Gregorian Telescope, of course, is built with two concave mirrors and an opening for an eyepiece at the bottom of the scope, so similar to a refractor. The primary mirror sits at the bottom of the telescope and reflects light as it passes through the tube. The light is then reflected to the secondary mirror, a reflective block near the top of the tube, where it is reflected directly back to the end of the telescope. The first fully constructed reflector was built by Isaac Newton in 1668. Uh, the Newtonian telescope... So basically, the first fully constructed reflector was built by Isaac Newton before... Uh, the first working reflector was built by Robert Hooke in 1673. So basically, you could say that Isaac Newton's reflector just didn't work at first. That's that's my assumption. Uh, the Newtonian telescope was this fully constructed reflector. Uh, the design often used in reflectors today is the uh, ref is the Newtonian, and it uses two mirrors, one at the back and one at the top, to enhance an image. A light enters the end of the tube and travels to the primary mirror at the back of the tube. Uh, upon the light's reflection, it travels in an altered trajectory up through the tube, where a slanted mirror reflects light toward a hole on which an eyepiece exists. Uh, the reflector took over a century to become popular as a result of the difficulty in construction and poor quality of the mirrors. As both issues were resolved and new technologies such as segmented mirrors, active op optics, and adaptive optics developed, uh, reflectors became more popular, especially in the research community. Today, reflectors are omnipresent in space telescopes and ground-based research telescopes, uh, common in deep, and, and it's also very common in deep sky and planet astrophotography telescopes, and very common in observational telescopes. But refractors and specifically SCTs, Schmidt-Cassegrains, are used at as much, if not more, I would say. The reflector telescope is used in almost all research-grade astronomical facilities. This is because the refractor, reflector gathers a wider spectrum of light than the refractor. Uh, some wavelengths are just simply absorbed by the lens on a refractor. Uh, the refractor requires no imperfections in the entire volume of the lens, uh, whereas the reflector requires no imperfections on only one side of the mirror. Unlike lenses, mirrors do not produce chromatic aberration, and refractors cannot easily support large aper apertures be larger than a meter because of the limited back support on the lens, and limited back support can cause gravitational sagging, uh, whereas literally the entire back side of the mirror on a reflector telescope can be used to support the mirror from sagging. Reflectors are very nice telescopes, but like all optical systems, reflectors are unable to produce a perfect image. 
One significant problem with reflectors is the presence of diffraction spikes and decreased contrast as a result of the presence of a secondary mirror, which obstructs some light from entering the tube. Uh, the number of sections created by dividing obstructions that hold the secondary mirror create the uh, diffraction spikes. Now, these are annoying spikes that can be hard to process out, not only hard to process out, but impossible to process out. Um, however, the diffraction patterns, especially in star clusters and nebulae with numerous, star, no, numerous luminous stars, can be used to add additional aesthetics to an image. I personally love diffraction spikes. Some people don't. They decide to buy refractors instead of reflectors. But if I could personally choose a really good telescope, I would get a reflector. I would get an SCT or a CDK. And actually, if... If I one day show you guys my future astronomy setup, dream astronomy setups, uh, two of them are CDK telescopes, which are reflectors, which are inherently reflectors. So, yeah. Um, but of course, they have reflectors have their own problems, and the reflecting telescope, while avoiding all chromatic and most spherical aberration. Uh, they still experience significant aberration. Uh, aberration in a, in a reflector can be chromatic, where the stars in the middle of the image are sharp, but the stars toward the edges are extremely elongated. Uh, there could be Petzval field curvature, an aberration in which a curved plane leads to a focus error across the field of view, and there can also be a distortion, an aberrational phenomenon that causes objects' shapes to appear distorted, of course. A derivative design uh, of the Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope, a telescope we'll talk about later, it's a catadioptric telescope that uses both lenses and mirrors, is the Ritchie-Creton telescope, a variant of the SCT that has two hy hyperbolic mirrors, primary and secondary, of course, to minimize all aberration, including coma. A chromatic aberration occurs with a parabolic primary meter, which the design of the RCT, an acronym for the Ritchie-Creton telescope, minimizes. Um, while the RCT is technically a variant for the SCT, SCT uh, a catadioptric telescope, the RCT is still characterized as a reflector because it does not have a lens. Uh, the RCT is a very common telescope used in uh, research. Uh, for example, the Hubble and the Very Large Telescope are both RCTs. A catadioptric telescope incorporates both mirrors and lenses in an optical system. Uh, basically, this means that reflection and refraction are combined into a single system. A notable example of a catadioptric telescope, and probably the most popular, one of the most popular observational telescopes ever created, even I have one. Uh, we, our observe, one of my observatory, one of my clubs has two of them alone, and they probably get like three of them a year as well. Um, but the, an example of this catadioptric telescope is the Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope. As light travels to the tube of the Schmidt-Cassegrain scope, it passes through a lens known as a Schmidt corrector plate, uh, basically corrects spherical aberration, and it travels to the end of the telescope, where it is reflected off the mirror. The reflected light travels to the end, uh, to the secondary mirror attached to the Schmidt corrector plate, which reflects the light to the eyepiece at the back end of the tube of the Schmidt-Cassegrain. The Schmidt-Cassegrain, through its design, has a much longer focal length with a much smaller size, though it often does not have a strong focal ratio because, for example, we have a 14-inch uh, Celestron edge, which is a Schmidt-Cassegrain, at our 
observatory we call it g-scope and it is it, it's an f11 it is an f11 which is not great light gathering abilities let's just say it that way um many of them often have apertures well over that well over f10 and that is very high um, but with a design that maximizes focal length and minimizes aberration, uh, the combination of lenses and mirrors work to minimize all optical aberration. Uh, catadioptric telescopes, specifically Schmidt-Cassegrain and catadioptric research telescopes, are extremely popular for their ability to image and observe small objects because focal length is maximized. However, light gathering power is comparably limited, with focal ratios often above f8 to f10. As a result, imaging requires significantly longer exposure time. Uh, for a crystal clear image, 15 to 24 hours are often required for an f11 scope with a high quality camera. I'm going to be going to the observatory tonight to image with a to image with basically with a research level telescope, but it's a 14 inch uh, Schmidt Cassegrain, and I am imaging the Dumbbell Nebula, Messier 27. It's a planetary nebula in Volpecula. And one thing, one thing about that is that uh, it unfortunately is, I'm unfortunately using a telescope with an f11 uh, focal ratio, but technically, technically we have a reducer on it, so it's really, it's really more like an f7.7. So it's like an f7.7, which is actually decent, um, but still I don't, Unfortunately, I don't think that it's gonna. I'm gonna be able to like image in one night, <laughs> take pictures for like six hours, and then be like, okay, I'm done. No, I'm gonna have to do a few nights of it. I'm gonna get. I'm thinking six hours tonight. I actually, I can probably get like five hours tonight, and then I'll probably do uh, about four hours on Saturday. And if I get it Sunday, I'll probably do another five hours, and then well, five plus five plus four is fourteen. So. 14 hours for an image and that's a bright planetary nebula so that's that's a pretty long image and it's just hydrogen and oxygen I, I think I was doing 8 and 10 hours though so that'd be 18 hours uh, but this is just an example this is an example of how it requires a significant amount of time just to create really good images out of these really large Schmidt-Cassegrain telescopes because they have such poor light gathering abilities. But you get to see small things, right? Um, while each telescope type has its own advantages and disadvantages, each type has accessories and necessities that work to minimize the disadvantages and highlight the advantages, a few of which are listed below. Uh, if you have a high focal length telescope and a low budget, a focal reducer may allow you to avoid spending the $4,000 on a new 500mm apochromatic refractor, because that is not the greatest thing. Uh, and I'm talking about 500 millimeters in focal length, by the way. Focal reducers reduce the focal length and decrease the focal ratio. Lower f uh, focal ratio means more light gathering power of a telescope. If your problem is the opposite, you can use a Barlow lens. Barlow lenses increase the effective focal length of your system, allowing you to image smaller objects with smaller telescopes or observe smaller objects with small smaller telescopes. However, just like the uh, just opposite of the focal reducer decreasing uh, focal ratio this the Barlow lens increases focal ratio So more light gathering will be necessary on our G-scope on our big 14-inch telescope that I'll be using tonight 
we have a focal reducer. It's a 0.7 focal reducer. So we go from we go from around 3700, or we go from 3910 to like 2750, uh, and our focal ratio goes from f11 to f7.7. So they're pretty important. Uh, apochromatic lenses uh, are very necessary for quality astrophotography and important for quality observation. Uh, apochromatic lenses work to resolve chromatic and spherical aberration, which are both quite rampant in basic refractors. A chromatic aberration is common in reflectors. The coma corrector works to minimize that, of course. A coma correctors essentially add reverse coma to the images, effectively eliminating significant coma at the edges of an image. Uh, so far, coma correctors work only in telescopes with focal ratios of less uh, more gathering, more light gathering power than f6. I have a number of friends with their own personal observatories and sophisticated astrophotography rigs, and even observational rigs. I have another, I have another acquaintance or friend that uses an 18-inch Dobsonian telescope, which is a very portable and nice telescope. Uh, their astounding understanding of astrophotography has always inspired me, for I wish to one day have observatories and sophisticated astrophotography setups of my own. When I read Walt Whitman's When I Heard the Learned Astronomer, I imagined myself as both the learned astronomer and the wanderer. Uh, I basically created this... I, I get really inspired when I do anything with astronomy, so just listen to my interesting excerpt from something I decided to just randomly write. By day, he is a learned astronomer. He writes math equations, analyzes computer models, problem solves, examines graphs and data tables, and leads the frontier toward omniscience. By night, he is the wanderer. He drives home to his house 14 miles southeast of Socorro, New Mexico, and sets up his observatories for the night. As he walks out to open the dome on the lukewarm August night, he looks up at Cygnus. In, an un, in the unobstructed Bortle One skies of New Mexico, he witnesses the majesty of the heavens. As his refractor begins to image, as his CDK begins to image, as his large telescopes begin to image the heavens, he witnesses, he remains awestruck, he witnesses the cosmos and remains awestruck at the cosmos, unable to break his eyes from the zenith. Humans tend to grow used to things they experience as they experience them more, but the heavens can never be grown used to. No human, even he, could look up at an unobstructed sky only to look back down without astonishment. I thank you all for listening, and as always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. Take care, and stay curious.